Heavenly Father, thank you for welcoming us into your presence through Jesus. Lord, we ask that as we read your word, which is not easy, Lord, sometimes to understand what you mean, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come amongst us, that you would teach us and explain to us your word and give us the boldness and the courage to obey what you tell us. We give you all the praise and thanks, Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, many years ago, when I received my driver's license, I think I was 17, I completed the class on safe driving. This particular class was actually taught by my dad in our family basement to a friend of mine and myself. As part of his work, he was supposed to give a class on safety driving. And so he wanted some practice, and so he gathered my friend and I, and he taught us this class. That was the story. But as I look back on it now, I think my dad had a second purpose in mind, and that was to teach us how to be safer drivers. I was only 17, you know, so I needed all the tips I could get. Although I didn't know it at the time, I've come to learn that the many lessons of safe driving actually can be applied to walking, biking, swimming, even, even on following Christ. One of the lessons that is very basic to safe driving is known as aim high. To aim high is to look up. Lift your eyes and see what's way ahead of you. See what's happening in the distance. Because it allows you to anticipate what is coming your way, whether it's to get out of the way or take evasive action. We've all seen, probably, uh, those humorous video posts of people who are walking along staring at their phones and they trip over some stairs, fall into a pond or worse, all because they weren't looking up. Maybe it's happened to you. But to drive safely simply means, in part, to master the art of looking up beyond the potholes and the other cars around you who are trying to cut you off, but ahead to see what's going on. Now, I'm getting to a point here. For the past several weeks, Pastor Brent has been skillfully leading us through the book of Exodus. And knowing that he'd be away today, he, uh, some time ago, asked me to think about preaching for today. In fact, he gave me permission to stop and take a break from Exodus for one Sunday and to do something different. So I asked the Lord, what do you want us to do today? And he reminded me of the need to aim high, to look up, to see what's on the horizon. Sometimes in our lives we can end up walking with Christ by staring at our feet. Okay, what step do I take next? That's our focus. Our attention is consumed with that step or with a past step that you took in the past. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, and you're looking back. When we finally do look up, sometimes we look in the wrong directions. There isn't much point in driving your car and staring in your rear mirror, looking what's going on behind you. If you look what's going on behind you when you're driving your car, that's a problem. You have to look ahead. You need to look at what's going on coming your way. So in the midst of our series on Exodus, we're going to pause this morning and we're going to lift our eyes and we're going to look up to the distant horizon where Jesus beckons us to worship him and to follow him into his future. In essence, today, Exodus is meeting the book of Revelation. 
What we've studied in Exodus becomes fully realized, fully achieved in the book of Revelation. In fact, the commentator, Alan Johnson, he said that out of 404 verses in Revelation, there are 278, at least 278, references to the Old Testament. It's the final book of the Bible. Yet over half its verses make allusions and references back to the Old Testament. This is one reason why we study the Old Testament, to understand the new, to understand what God is doing in the future. And so the book of Revelation acts as a capstone, a consummation of God's plans. And it's where we're going today, in brief. I'll tell you, at the end of this message, my my prayer is really simple. It's that each of us be swept up into worshiping our God. Swept into the hope of his glorious plans, because they are amazing. What glimpses we have are incredible. Looking ahead to that day provides us perspective on how to live today in light of what God is already doing. So with this in mind, let's buckle up, plug in that seat belt in your pew, and let's join John as he walks on his journey with the various visions of Revelation. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have actually read the book of Revelation or how many of you actually are aware of its message and its contents. So I'm going to just, at the beginning, give you a little bit of a brief overview. There are many ways to organize this book. And many commentaries have different ways of organizing how it's structured. What I'm doing today is simply focusing on four visions. That's how we're going to look at it being structured. In chapters 1 and 3, John has this vision of seeing the Son of Man, of seeing Jesus. And he's given seven messages to the churches in Asia Minor. And then in the second vision, the longest portion, he sees the coming judgment upon the world. And then in the third and fourth visions, he sees the return of Christ and the end of history. History will come to an end one day. And the last vision is a vision of what God will do for a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. Brand new. In fact, so brand new that even memory of sin and suffering will disappear. It won't even be in your mind. It's gone. Overwhelmed by the presence of God. As we narrow down this structure to look at Revelation 5, where does it fit? It fits in the second vision. Interestingly, before God reveals what he's going to do in judgment, there's a pause for two chapters. In chapter 4 and 5, there's a pause. And in these two chapters, John is given a picture of the royal throne of heaven. He's seen the worship of God. And then comes judgment. Specifically, these two chapters of 4 and 5 are about worshiping God. And this worship precedes the unveiling of God's final plans. John sees these, this worship of God in these two chapters in terms of five hymns. Yeah, they're singing in heaven. We're not going to talk about the first two in Revelation 4, but in Revelation 4, there's a hymn to who God is and a hymn for his creation. The heavenly beings say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's who he is. And for his creation, 
They were worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. And then this is followed by our text for today. Revelation 5. There are three hymns. There's two and then there's one. There's two hymns to the Lamb. Praising him for his redemption of his people and for who he is. Revelations 4, it's for God who he is, what he did, what Jesus has done, and who he is. It's kind of a little parallel structure. And the final hymn, which we'll look at today, is towards God and the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 4, John is given access to the royal throne. And he sees God sitting on his throne, surrounded by heavenly beings, four living creatures. So the throne room, four living creatures around that throne worshiping God. And beyond them, 24 elders, supernatural beings created for the purpose to worship God. That's their function. Night and day, if there's night and day, to worship and to give glory and honor and to direct others to focus and worship on God. So after witnessing all of this, we come to chapter 5. And John says this. Then I saw. If you read the book of Revelation, you will notice many times this is a refrain. Then I saw, then I heard, then I looked. It's as if John is taking you with him and saying, look, this is what I have seen. I'm a witness to this. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. In God's right hand, he's holding something. It's a scroll. You know, what is a scroll? In the time of John, scrolls were made of of parchment or papyrus sheets that were sewn together. And on one side, you could write, then roll it up, tie it together, and put it away. These scrolls were used for many purposes, one of which was ancient deeds or wills. They'd be sealed, then hidden, until the time they're needed because they're an important document. For some reason, God is holding this scroll. But in this scroll, if you notice, there's writing on both sides, the inside and the outside. Now John was close enough to notice that there was writing on both sides. Or the scroll is large enough that he could see from a distance. In any case, it's filled with text, with writing. And it is sealed with seven seals to keep the content secret so that only those who are authorized could look into it. About this, Robert Mounts, who's a commentator, a well-known commentator on Revelation, uh, he writes this. The scroll was filled to overflowing and sealed with seven seals to ensure its secrecy of its decrees. It contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined is the destiny of the world. He can make this this assertion, Robert Mounts can make this assertion, because if you read Revelation 6 to 19, we see the scroll open and its contents known to us. That is the judgment of the world, of what God is going to do, including the new heaven and the new earth. Basically, from chapter 6 onward, that's the scroll being unrolled. And we are privy, we are allowed the privilege of knowing what the future is going to be. But then he says, And I saw a mighty angel 
proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? A question is asked. This mighty angel speaks in a loud voice. Why in a loud voice? Because it's going everywhere, through every part of creation. This question is being asked. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Now the term worthy also is a key term in this book of Revelation because it keeps reappearing. To be worthy is somebody who has the right to do something. Somebody who deserves that honor. Somebody who's earned the merit to do something. In this case, who has the right to open the scroll? Who has the merit to do this? It's not based upon power. Because God himself, note, he doesn't open the scroll. He just holds it out. He's calling for a mediator to come and to do it. But the text tells us, John says, as he's watching this vision in heaven, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or to even look inside. It appears at that moment in all creation, there wasn't anyone, anything worthy to open the scroll. When he says in heaven or on earth or under earth, it means everywhere. It's universal. No one could or would even dare to step forward to take the scroll. Or even, notice it says, or even look inside. Not just touching the scroll, but even looking inside was something that could not be done. You could even take a peek. And so, of course, John hears this. And he weeps. He says, I wept and I wept wept loudly in my distress because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. He was filled with deep sorrow. And Romans 3.10 tells us that no one is righteous, not even one. No one could open the scroll. But why, why would John, the Apostle John, be moved to such distress? To cry. To be filled with sorrow because no one can take the scroll. Well, there's a sense of an indefinite postponement of God's final plans. Everything's on a hold. Everything is on hold until a mediator can be found. And this means that justice is being delayed. If you're somebody who's been hurt, or you just turn on the news and you watch our world and you say, God, what is going on? Where is your justice? Where is your righteousness? We're waiting, Lord, for you to come and to end this suffering and these wars and these diseases. When, Lord? Well, I'm waiting for someone worthy to open the scroll to begin the process. And so John weeps. But I think there's an even deeper reason here. As I thought about this. And I think John, this is a privileged thing for him to be allowed by God himself to enter the throne room and to see this vision. Yet, John, like the rest of us, are sinners by nature. When he heard the mighty angels say, who is worthy to open the scroll, John must have thought, I am not worthy. You know, I was uh, at a conference and there was a speaker there. He was talking about um, some intense time he had with the Lord in a retreat. And he said that he, he sensed the presence of the Lord near him. And he said it crushed him. He said, feeling, just the feeling the presence of the Lord 
exposed in himself all his shame, all his sin, all those things he shouldn't have done. Yeah, he's forgiven, but the weight of it, the weight of that forgiveness was so great that he recoiled away. You know, it's like if I had a very big bright spotlight and I shot it around here, what would you do? You, you kind of turn it off. It's too bright. When God's light shines in your heart, that's what happens. That's what should happen. We start to see ourselves as, as we really are, broken and sinners, unable to obey him. We naturally recoil away from those things. How hard is it to ask somebody for their forgiveness because you've offended them? That's tough to do, especially if you've hurt somebody deeply. Imagine doing that before God, whom we've hurt. We naturally want to recoil away from that. So I think John, when he heard this call, saw his own sin and he saw his own redemption and what Christ had done for him. And despite being forgiven, John is not worthy to open that scroll. And neither are we. Nobody is. At that moment, however, something happens. Then one of the 24 elders steps forward, touches John, and says to him, don't weep. It's okay. Look. Look over there. See the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and break its seals. The elder points to the lion and gives him two titles tribe of Judah and the root of David. This refers back to Genesis 49 when Jacob was blessing his 12 sons and he turns to Judah and he says, Judah, you're like a lion's cub. The scepter of rule will not depart from Judah, from your tribe, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now he has come. The lion from the tribe of Judah has come to take his rightful rule. He is the one who is worthy. He also given the title of the root of David, hearkening back to Isaiah 11, where God through Isaiah says he's going to raise a branch up from Jesse, the father of David, the Messiah who will be the conquering warrior Messiah. You know, when Jesus stood for his last time on the earth with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended to heaven, where we, where we wait for his return, what did the disciples ask Jesus in Acts 1.6? Lord, are you at this time going to make and restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking, he's the root of David. He's the conqueror Messiah. Well, now it's going to happen. He's the one who's worthy and who's triumphed, who's overcome victory through sacrifice. The message of what Christ has done. He's the one who can open the scroll and look into it. But when Jonathan read the text this morning, how many of you noticed something unusual in the text? Is there something unusual here? What did the elders say to John? Stop weeping, don't weep. Look, see the lion. What does John see? Does he see a lion? He sees a lamb. To the elder, the one who is worthy looks like a lion. 
To John, the one who's worthy looks like a lamb. It's a lamb that bears two marks. One mark of death. Why a lamb? Of course, a lamb because John in his gospel talks about Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, refers back to the Passover sacrifice. The lamb has always been the object through which God has taken for sacrifice. And yet here this lamb who has been slain, as if slain, and how do you kill a lamb? You slit its throat. That's what you do. That's a sacrifice. So here is this lamb, but he's standing, as if dead, but alive. But you notice where he's standing. Is he standing behind the elders with John? He's standing at the center of the throne. The four living creatures who worship God night and day, the elders around them are there, but he's in the middle. So it's another mark that he bears of divinity. Further described for us, when he says the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. A horn is a symbol of power. The seven is a completion of that. The number seven is a a completed number in scripture. Implying, more than implying, it's a symbol of his irresistible might and power. His omnipotence and his dominion. And the seven eyes of the knowledge. The symbolic of perfect knowledge, of omniscience. What you're describing here is God himself. It's a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit on one throne. It's not two or three thrones. It's one throne. This is all symbolic language. It's hard for us to grasp because we're talking about God's very presence. And so, the Lamb steps forward. He takes the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. The idea of of to take here carries a, a sense of dramatic action that we don't have in English. It says, in essence, he came and now has taken. He went up and took the scroll and now he has it. At last, at last, he has the scroll. At last, God's future can be unveiled and exercised. Christ is victorious through his death and resurrection and therefore is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And as he takes this scroll to add to the dramatic tension of what's going on, we come to the first hymn to the Lamb. This is the first hymn that is sung to him. It's even referred to as a new song. And when, they, when he'd taken it, when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped from before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of God's people. This struck me this morning when I was looking at this passage again, but I hadn't seen it until just this morning. In Revelation 4.10, when their angels or the elders are worshipping the one who sits on the throne, it says that the four living creatures proclaimed God's greatness. Then the elders fell. Here, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall before the Lamb. An even greater honor in some ways that it includes all creation falling before the Lamb.
In fact, here the Lamb is worshipped in exactly the same way as the one who sits on the throne. And they have harps. In the Psalms, we know that a harp is an instrument, a stringed instrument, not like we see for harps today, these big harps you know, people play. It's not like that. It's the older times, the harp is a smaller stringed instrument, but it's almost always used in worship. Worship is just not singing with our voices. It involves instruments. It involves a variety of means and ways to worship God. But further, and also very interesting, that as they fall before the Lamb, what do they have in their hand beside a harp? They have golden bowls full of incense, which, the incense, which is the prayers of God's people or his saints. In Psalm 141, verse 2, the psalmist writes, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May it rise before you as a fragrant aroma of prayer. And these are not prayers of praise. They're prayers of petition, of requests. We know later on in Revelation 6, when the scroll begins to be unveiled and opened, that the saints call to God for judgment upon those who martyred them. And further in Revelation, the prayers of the people of the saints of God are connected with the trumpets that are sounded to further bring judgment upon the world. Likely the bowls are filled with petitions of God to bring judgment, to bring justice, to bring his kingdom. And these are brought before the Lamb as the elders worship him. And this is called a new song. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You know, every new act of mercy brings forth a new song of gratitude and praise. This is a new song because it is sung to the Lamb in whom there is a new covenant. It's not new in terms of time. It's new in quality. A covenant achieved through his death and through his resurrection. Now notice, it says you are worthy to take the scroll. This song gives three reasons why the lamb is worthy. He's worthy because he was slain. He wasn't killed by, by force. He chose to lay down his life for you, for me, for the world. He gave himself up to death. But we know he's not, he didn't remain slain because he's standing. The second reason is that you purchased with your blood, you purchased people for God. But notice the order here. With your blood, you purchased, now you could say with your blood, you, with your blood you purchased people for God, but where is the emphasis placed here? And with your blood you purchased for God. That's why we are alive in Christ, because it's God's desire. It's his will. It's his perfect joy to redeem us through Christ. Purchased for God. People from everywhere. Universal. No language, no ethnicity, no color, no language. I said that. No racial profile. Everyone is included. God pulls every person toward himself. Even from those in the deepest places where the gospel you don't think goes, God has his ways to bring his word.
Paul tells us in, uh, Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 2 that we were bought with a price, a great price. And in Colossians 2.15, he also says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the Lamb who has done all this. The third thing he's done, he died for us, he rose, he's purchased us with his blood, and then he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. This is Exodus 19.6 fulfilled. A few weeks ago we talked about this. Where God had said, you'll be my treasured possession. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. And this is now fulfilled. But it's fulfilled not by our doing, but by his doing in us. To reign on the earth. The kingdom in a sense that we're all corporately belonging to the kingdom. But also priests are individuals. Each one of us serves God as a priest before him and as a result of this redemption. So this new song is beginning to be sung. Living creatures and 24 elders are bowing down before the God. And soon the circle of worship widens to include a second hymn. The last few verses of Revelation. Here it is again. Then John says, I looked, I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000. And they were encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So you have the throne, the four living creatures, out from them, the 24 elders, and now uncountable number of, of angels come. You know, it's symbolic, but if you multiply 10,000 by 10,000, you have 100 million. No wonder, he said, and then I looked and I heard I didn't see. I heard. I heard a massive voice singing these words in unison like thunder rolling across God's throne room. It's a declaration. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's interesting, in the first hymn, the elders say, you are worthy. In the second, they say, worthy is the lamb. It's a declaration that he is worthy. He's worthy because, again, he's slain. This is a refrain in this passage. He's worthy because he was slain. He's victorious through sacrifice. And then this sevenfold ascription of praise and worship to God, to the lamb. The first six power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, are intrinsic qualities of who he is. This is how you describe God. The last one is the worship, the praise that comes, the expression of deep admiration. Because he's magnificent and beautiful, full of glory, because he's esteemed esteemed and honored and respected, because of his strength and his might, that he has no rival, that he's perfect in experience, judgment, that he possesses everything in his wealth and his power is unrivaled. Don't ever think that God can't help you out. Just lift your eyes, look at the stars at night and see what he's made. If he can do that, man, it's nothing. It took a lot of effort to redeem you 
supreme effort. He does not leave us alone. But this is not where it ends. There's a third hymn that the echo of worship even goes further than this. It goes outward beyond this, like ripples on a lake. If you drop a rock in a lake, you watch the ripples emerge. This is what's happening. It's the echo of worship. Because now in the final hymn, John doesn't say, then I looked or I saw. All he says is, then I heard. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all in them saying the same thing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. Every creature is speaking. This reminds me of Philippians 9. Uh, uh, sorry, Philippians 2, chapters 9, verse 9 to 11, where it says, Therefore God exalted him, the one who was slain, to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue, con- every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this final hymn, who, who, who's everybody singing to? To the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now the throne is blended, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In Revelation 4, it was focused on God the Father. First part of Revelation 5 is focused on the Lamb. And now, at the end, at the highest moment of crescendo of praise, is to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And this is where we enter the chorus. This is when we add our voices to the worship. It says all creation. I'm sure John was right there saying the same words. From the loudest part of his voice yelling out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power. For he is worthy. The sense of, of rising up, this groundswell of thunderous worship extending everywhere should fill us with joy because this is the future. Our world is going in that direction and it fills creation for how long? How long does this worship last? Forever and ever. There's no end. It just continues on. And so, as this book, this chapter comes to a conclusion, the ones who started the worship bring it to a close. The four living creatures, the closest ones to the throne, said, Amen. Let it be so. And in response, the 24 elders fall down again and worship him. These hymns of praise and adoration in Revelation 5, they do precede the coming of judgment. Because it is the Lamb, the Christ, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to bring judgment and to bring to a completion history and the fulfillment of God's, the Father's ultimate plan. And this was also looked forward to in the book of Exodus. From now on, when Pastor Brent preaches the rest of the book of Exodus, remember this. Look up. Why is Exodus even in the Bible? Why did God even tell us what he was doing with the people of Israel and the New Covenant and the law at Mount Sinai? Revelation 5. That's where we're going. It's important to keep our eyes looking up to the horizon sometimes and to see what's coming. It puts things in perspective. It puts our lives 
into perspective. That's what we long to see, is to see God glorified. So one day, those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ in obedience, if you've submitted to Christ, if you've given everything that you are to him, I want you Lord of my life. We will join in that worship, just like John. Have the privilege of, of seeing and worshiping the Lord. But it's not too late. It's not too late for any who have not yet bowed before God. It's going to happen. All creation will bow. We should bow now, because if you bow later, you're forced, and you're cast out. Faith is expressed as we repent, as we turn away from the darkness that's within us. We recognize, God, you know, I'm at a place where I can't do nothing. I can't solve my own problems. I am lost, and you're my only solution. That's what, he, that, that's what he, he expects from us. To worship God means we give everything we are to him and more. He becomes who we serve, who we obey. Because only Christ, the Lamb, is worthy to open the scroll. Because he was slain to purchase you for God. So let this be the first day of a new life. Repentance, faith, following. In fact, it's called repentant faith because we're always in a state where we recognize that we need God. And it begins with that first step. The Lord in Exodus saw that this day was, was, was coming. And he prepared people to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he gave his law on Mount Sinai to lead us to this point, to show us that we cannot we can't get to God in our own strength or even obeying his own law because we always fail. And our only truly honest response is to join with the four living creatures, the elders, and all creation and the angels in worshiping God, in loving gratitude as we look up to see him. We're supposed to lift our eyes and to see God's everlasting glory. Just like this picture of this little baby, up in wonder and amazement. That's your face when you look up and you put your eyes on the horizon and you see the glorious future that God has set and that he has taken the kindness and the gentle mercy to show us this is what the future holds. So whether you're driving a car or whether you're walking on the street corner or even today when you are walking with Christ by faith, remember to look up and to see what is on the horizon. And when the horizon is, is our Lord being worshipped. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are absolutely, completely worthy. You alone are worthy, Lord. You alone came as a baby in a manger, but you won't return as one. You come back, Lord, as the ruler as the one who can open the scrolls, the one who will usher in judgment and bring the inheritance that you promised. Jesus, we worship you, we bow before you, and we honor you, and we praise you and thank you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.